Hello and welcome once again to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall and I'm the Project Coordinator at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project at Windsor Law School. And I'm Julie McFarlane, the Director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And this week we've got a bit of a different episode. Usually we tend to do one interview with one person and then kind of have a wrap-up segment after that. But this week what we decided to do was something we've been wanting to do for quite a while mm -hmm. now, which is get some input put from students, some current, some past, and they are all anonymous. So you will hear some thoughts from, from students read by me from an anonymous survey that we took, but we wanted to get their thoughts on a process known as the OCIs here in law school. The ubiquitous on-campus interviews. And just in case you're listening and wondering why are all these going to have to be anonymous, the OCI process is the process whereby students at law school uh, after the end of their second year and again after the end of their third year apply for jobs at big Toronto Bay Street firms. That's the only place that this particular recruitment process uh, recruits to, but that does represent, because 85% of lawyers work in firms of more than 100, that is the place that many of our students will end up working. So we've been interested in trying to get students to tell us what they've been telling us privately about some of the uh, stress and the competitiveness of this particular process. So what we've done is we've got some anonymous comments because people are not comfortable doing this publicly, with the exception of our guest in the second part of the podcast, who's a two-year call. Her name is Kim Orr. She's at Pachoco and Mallow, who are personal injury lawyers in Windsor. And she's two years out. So Kim felt comfortable putting her name on the record and talking about her experience of the OCIs. We should add um, our method of gathering anonymous comments from students has been to put out a anonymous survey monkey surveys. We actually have no idea where these comments came from, whether they're Windsor students um, or... They could be from anywhere. They could be from absolutely right. anywhere. So they're 100% anonymized and we just want to make any student, anybody who wrote in feel completely comfortable that we have no idea who you are, nor does anybody else listening to this. And I hope that that will also make listeners realize just how scared students are about speaking up publicly about this process. Mm -hmm. Hence our desire to do a podcast and start the conversation. So let me first of all just give you a very quick speed guide to the on-campus interviews so that you'll understand the comments that you're going to hear Dana reading and then the remarks that Kim Orr will make after that. First of all, students prepare their applications during the summer months. This takes up an enormous amount of energy and focus for career services that really this becomes the focus of the work of career services. And once again, I just want to, to remind listeners, this is about applying for a job at a Bay Street law firm. This is not about applying for a job in Windsor or in Ottawa or in Thunder Bay or in Vancouver. This is about the Bay Street firms. Students put their applications in. They then are notified if they've been selected for an on-campus interview, which is what OCI stands for. The on-campus interviews take place in the fall. It's a kind of speed dating <laughs> kind of situation where students zip between tables and do these short interviews. They also go to a number of cocktail receptions. More of that later. They then get a call. 
um, a month later from law firms who want to move then to the next stage of the process, which is the in-firm interview. They then go through the process of interview a second time with the firms that have called them back, plus the cocktail parties, plus the dinners. And then at the end of that week, they start getting calls from employers um, who are making offers either for summer positions for the second years or for articling positions for the third years. So there are a number of concerns that we've heard fairly repetitively from students around these processes, and we wanted to give some of them a chance to put some thoughts about this on the record. So let's listen to what they have to say. This week on the podcast, we wanted to ask for feedback on the OCI's process. So we reached out to current and former law students across the country through our social media pages, asking for their experiences of the process. And we have some really interesting responses, and I'm going to share those with you now. Our first respondent said, Leading up to the OCI day, I was so nervous, I wasn't sure if I had done enough mock interviews or reviewed enough potential questions, especially hearing what others were doing to prepare. I received a lot of advice from different people, all of it very different, but this didn't help with my nerves. On the day, it was busy and exhausting, but I felt it went well for the most part. I really enjoyed the conversations I had and the people I met with. Leading up to call day and on-call day, it was less intimidating and nerve-wracking, and I think the intent to call emails gave us a clear picture of where we stood for the infirm stage. Infirm week itself seemed to go well. There was one firm in particular that I felt really great about, and though I had previously stopped caring so much about obtaining a job through this process, I began really seeing myself working there. On call day, I did not receive a call and it stung. I worked extremely hard, put in a great deal of work, sacrificed schoolwork, and at the end of the day, I don't think I could have done anything differently. My ultimate conclusions are that the entire process has made me, and I'm sure others, question my self-worth and whether I'm cut out for this profession. I know that seems irrational, and for the most part I can overcome this feeling, but there have been days throughout the process, and there are still days where those thoughts pop into my head. Coming back to school has been the most difficult part of the process. Though I am so happy for those who were successful, it is tough hearing whispers about the students who received positions and wondering what it is about me that wasn't good enough. Ultimately, though I wasn't successful, I have to remind myself to focus on the positive takeaways from the experience. I built meaningful connections that I intend to maintain, I polished up my interviewing and networking skills, and I really did put my best foot forward. Three things I wish were different. One, no rejection or intent to interview before the OCI process. Two, having this process take place while students are in school is very challenging. It was very difficult hearing about other people getting interviews or not getting interviews, and it interferes with school. And finally, perhaps bring less than 100 students back for infirms. It seems like the firms end up rejecting around half of those they brought back on the first day of infirm interviews. Another respondent had this to say, Fantastic process. The most efficient and effective way to recruit qualified students. One respondent noted that the process was emotionally and physically exploitative, that there was a lack of transparency from firms, that they found some firms to be misleading, and finally had this to say, The process worked out for me, but there needs to be a better way of going about the process. It fosters unhealthy attitudes amongst students and their future potential employers. Our next respondent had the following reflections to share. 
The 2L summer recruitment process was needlessly frustrating. I will preface my comment by noting that while this process did result in my securing a position for next summer, there were moments of stress that I would not wish upon anyone. Given the structure and formality of the Law Society's rules, there are rules of when you contact firms, when you can't, what you can say, what questions employers are allowed to ask you. Of course, firms do find ways to make you feel pressured to say things that they can't ask, like whether a firm is your first choice. My biggest concern, at various stages including the intent to call emails, the on-campus interviews, and the in-firm interviews, is the lack of effective communication. Given that employers send staggered emails or phone calls, the process becomes an emotional roller coaster when others receive information and you're left waiting. Regardless of whether you get an interview or not, the system would be improved if everyone found out together through some sort of central system, like the VI portal, which is used to submit applications. Employers could log in, submit their selections, and all the students could later log in at the same time and accept or decline offers to interview or job offers. To use a system like this for job offers, there needs to be more time between interviews and offers. In my case, my final interview concluded at around 2 p.m. on Wednesday, and that same day at 5 p.m. was when offers began rolling out. Could employers possibly have enough time to determine whether to extend an offer? I think we should give employers more time to decide, especially because they're not creating a simple yes or no list. Not only do employers need to think about which students to extend offers to, they also effectively create a comprehensive ranking list of who to call next if one of their offerees declines. Further, if we give employers the time to make a comprehensive list, that time can also be used by students to rank and submit all the employers they interviewed with, much like the residency matching program for medical students. The current system is like playing a card game of rummy, where each player is collecting a set of four, but where each player has three out of four of a particular card, and the remaining card that each player needs is held by another player that has no reason to discard it. If students and employers can rank each other after all the interviews are completed, a computer algorithm can match the students to their highest ranking choice that also selected them. If I received an offer at 5 p.m. on Wednesday from the place that I would least prefer to work but would still be willing to accept, and I held on to the offer for 24 hours and didn't receive other offers because other students were in the same boat, I would accept the offer. If I received a call Friday morning from a place I would prefer to work, I'd then have to decline. That employer might then be working down their list, calling students who are forced to decline until finally reaching someone who can accept it. Overall, this antiquated system of calling and providing 24 hours is ineffective and saddles students and firms with situations that are less than ideal. This is just one of the concerns I have with the OCI process, but unlike some of the other concerns I have, this one seems easily fixable, so it's the one I chose to reflect on. Another respondent said, I wish they had told us from the get-go what the numbers are. If we had known the percentage of the student population that would get their jobs through this process, maybe we would not have fully invested so much time and energy into it and not have been so devastated after coming so close but not quite. Everything is so arbitrary. You could do all the right things and be yourself and put your heart into it and still not be enough. So it seems a bit ridiculous to invest a disproportionate amount of energy, time, and resources into the process. I wish we had known. There are other opportunities, tons, but nobody talked about these opportunities more than the OCI process. It's been hyped up into this huge thing, the biggest deal. No wonder those of us who are unsuccessful, majority, I'm assuming, are pretty devastated and questioning our worth at the end of it. This is toxic. Hello, Kim. How are you? I'm good, thanks. 
Good. Thank you so much for talking to me this morning. I appreciate you fitting this into what I know is a very busy week. So in order to get started, um, aside from the fact that you're a lawyer with Pachoco Mello in Windsor, would you like to say anything else to briefly introduce yourself? Sure. So I'm a second year call. I graduated in 2016 from the dual program at Windsor. So I've got a degree from Windsor and UDM. Uh, I practice personal injury law, which is something I never thought I would do when I was in law school, um, but I actually absolutely love, which kind of tells people to keep their options open. Um, And I'm actually using my dual degree in personal injury law, which is kind of amazing. Um, So I do a little bit of Michigan accident benefits and um, a bit of Michigan personal injury law too. So Kim, you... Uh, told me that you would like to talk about your own OCI experience, which, of course, is two years ago now. Um, and I suspect that there are going to be both positives and negatives to this and that you have some things that you would like to say. So why don't you go for it? Okay. So I guess the first thing is that I was actually successful in the OCI process. I ended up working for Ontario Lottery and Gaming for the summer after second year as a result of the OCI process. Right. And I only had three on-campus interviews, and I had one in-firm. It was with OLD, and I ended up getting the job. So, you know, sometimes one is all it takes is actually a true statement. And I, because it was a a government organization, I didn't have any of the, like, intent to call emails. Um, They didn't do anything like that. And so I think it was, like, 3 or 4 o'clock was the the calling time for jobs offers. And I didn't end up getting a call until 7 p.m. in the oh. evening. And oh. so I thought, oh, no, that's it. Like, I I haven't been successful at the OCI process. There's no way I'm getting a job. And I'm in the middle of a workout class. So I was like, well, I've got to get this frustration out somehow. And then my phone rings and I just drop everything and start running over to it. Um, and, you know, everyone right. else is just like, what is she doing? This person is crazy. <laughs> Uh, and I pick up the phone and I'm panting because <laughs> I've been doing this like strenuous workout class. And then that's when the job offer came in. Before the call came in, tell me about how you managed with the stress of the process up until that point. It's kind of odd because I never really wanted to do OCIs in the first place. I, I never really wanted to end up going up to Toronto for a job, but it felt like everyone in my class was applying. And Mm. so there's this pressure to say, well, you know, like, where else are you going to get a job? There are no other jobs. Like, this is how you do it. I'm actually really glad I I went up to Toronto for um, the summer and I worked and it was a a whole new experience. I I couldn't have gotten anywhere else. But even just the pressure to take the job, when the call came in, I was like, well, you know, I don't even know if I want to work there, but I have to say yes. Yeah, um, yeah. Because you got that far in the process now, and you didn't feel exactly. you had a choice. Is there a way that the whole OCI summer position process could have been presented? Could have been, let's put it, marketed in the law school that would have made it easier for you to figure out whether or not this was something you really wanted to do. I remember going through all of the meetings, and they're saying, oh, you need to do mock interviews. I didn't do any. I was like, I don't care that much, because uh, I wasn't that committed to the process, and I just mm. ended up getting, you know, thrown in the boat and dragged down the river. Yeah. And I remember finding out after the process was done that 
think it was um, U of T put out a summary of all of the different schools and all of the different OCI jobs that they had actually been awarded. I, I looked at that chart and I went, why didn't someone show this to me like in first year when I was applying for these jobs? Because if I had known that, you know, out of the 200 people at Windsor that less than 50% of us are going to end up with jobs through this process, you know, it, it might have, you might have put less time into it. You might have thought, well, yeah, I, I want to do this, but there might be other avenues for me. Um, it would just have given you a more realistic idea of, of, of what was really ahead. Yeah, and I think it would have set you up so that you didn't feel like such a failure when you didn't succeed in the OCI process. You would have been like, oh, well, that's fine. There's the other 50%. Me and 50%. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Who also yeah. didn't get a job. People seem to say like, oh, I'm, I feel so silly for having gotten so stressed out and so worked up. But I, I would say not to get so down on yourself for being stressed. It's a stressful process. Because everybody process. does like, it, right. Yeah. Well, and, and that's a natural reaction. But also, if you are successful in OCIs, if you end up getting a job, if you end up articling for the firm, if they hire you back afterwards, I mean, this one process is dictating the rest of your life. Like, if you're not going to get stressed out for that, what are you going to get stressed about? Do you think that what you heard in those comments from students, you know, highlight other ways in which we might make this experience better? One of the students commented on um, bringing fewer students back for infirms. And I thought that was a, a good comment because if firms could spend more time with each individual student so that it wasn't just like a half-hour interview in the firm and maybe, you know, like a fancy cocktail this night, uh, you might get a better sense of not just what it's like to have a couple of drinks with these people, but also uh, what it would actually be like to work in that atmosphere. Now, before I let you go, Kim, I do have to just follow up on one other thing you said, that I'm sure that some of the people listening to this who are not lawyers, will have perked up at and taken note of. You said not just having a few drinks. Now, I know that the kind of cocktail party culture is a big part of these infirm interviews, uh, and I think that might be a little bit surprising to some of the people who are listening who aren't lawyers. So could you say a little bit about the role that those social occasions play in this whole recruitment process? Yeah, um, a lot of firms do either like a cocktail reception or some sort of dinner reception. And I think part of the cultural aspect of being a lawyer is because you work such long hours, firms really become a family. And so a lot of firms are trying to figure out, okay, if we plan outings for our associates, if we plan outings for our students, are they actually going to get along? Are they going to be people that, you know, we want to take to a baseball game and have a beer with and, and have a nice Friday afternoon out of the office? Because let's face it, all of you are going to be working Saturday anyways. And so it's, it's really this fit that they're trying to assess. And part of the way that they do it is not seeing you in a suit in an interview, but seeing you and how you actually socialize with people. And another aspect of it is, as a lawyer, you know, people don't think of it, but you're really your own small business sometimes. 
you have to bring in your own clients, you have to network and socialize and make connections in the business community if you want to bring in clients. Or even, heck, even if you're just writing wills, like you have to socialize with people who need them. Um, so they need to know that. So they're checking out your social skills. Yeah. So, Kim, thank you very much. I think many people are going to find what you've said interesting, not only uh, law students and former law students who've been through this process, but also members of the public who I think are interested in how lawyers get hired and what kinds of decisions are made at that hiring stage and on what basis. So thank you very much again for your time this morning. No problem. Anytime. Thanks, Kim. Bye-bye. some very interesting thoughts and comments, both from our anonymous commenters <laughs> and from Kim. Yeah. Um, we have been discussing this so much over the last few years. Kind of want to explain a little bit further why we felt it was important to do this. I mean, I know you for over the last decade and myself over the last couple of years with NSRLP, we see students up close and personal on a, you know, a daily, a weekly basis. And, and every year we see the impact yeah. that this process has on our students. And, you know, we know that that impact is not just felt by our students who we know more personally. And that is borne out in the comments that we got that from... we received from students in other yeah. schools. Yeah, that's right. And I think it's really important to be clear about what is fueling this anxiety. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I think it's reasonable enough. Anybody listening might say, well, you know, if you're going for a job in a big fancy law firm, you're bound to feel anxious about it. But the part of this that I think is so disturbing is that it is a very particular kind of anxiety that's being created here. And it's an anxiety about being, first of all, competitive, mm -hmm. because this is a competition amongst students, and that's a very uncomfortable dimension of this. And second of all, this is about really expecting students to kind of buy into a particular model of legal practice. It may or may not be the model of legal practice that they thought they wanted to undertake, <laughs> but there is so much peer pressure to, as Kim put it, I thought beautifully, be, to be dragged down the river, yeah. as she said, with well, everybody else. And this is just it. We've heard, you know, obviously Kim said this as well, and we've heard from so many students who have kind of said, yeah, originally I wasn't really thinking I would do OCIs, mm -hmm. but then it just seemed like such a big thing. Everyone was doing it. It felt like, I, I guess I need to. Right. And then they get completely, you know, swept up in this process and buried in it, and it creates all this anxiety. And I think they tend to forget that this is just one type of possible career that they could right. have. Now, you know, it is true that most lawyers work in large law firms, but that isn't the only kind of work out there. And I think one of the things that we have also heard consistently, I've heard from students over many, many years, is a real regret that so much time is taken up in the advising services and career services with this particular process. And if a student is interested in working in another city or in another kind of work or perhaps in a legal clinic, perhaps in a policy position somewhere, there is really very little support because so much of the oxygen gets sucked up 
by the OCIs. And, mm. you know, I think we just see that over and over again. And I'm quite certain that, that, that Windsor's not the only place that that's happening. Oh, sure. Yeah. We also wanted to talk about, this was something that Kim brought up, but it's something that we've definitely heard from, from students, ours and others over the last few years, um, is this issue of having to kind of be wined and dined and show yeah. up. It's part of the, the process. The cocktail party. The cocktail party is you're expected to go and kind of hobnob. It sounds like it's a pretty, you know, especially depending on your personality type, it can be more or less exhausting and draining exactly. and nerve wracking. And you know, Kim definitely made some really valid points, I think, about there are reasons why you could see an employer, right. a big law firm, would want to see how potential hires interact socially and, you right. know, uh, all of these things. How they conduct themselves. How they conduct themselves, situation. yeah, which is which is fair. But I think we see some problematic elements to this as well in that it can really disadvantage people who, what about people who don't drink, uh, who are at right. a disadvantage? And I, and I have actually seen that over the years, extremely talented students who, um, for example, an observant Muslim person won't drink after work. And I've seen those people, you know, very clearly discriminated against. There's also, as you mentioned, um, people who are very anxious in social situations. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that they're not going to make good lawyers, mm -hmm. that they're not going to be able to work one on one with their clients. So I do have to question just how necessary it is to evaluate somebody um, in a social setting with a large number of people with a drink in their hand. And I think it tells you something about the culture of the legal profession, that that is considered to be a fair way to assess people. Mm -hmm. uh, the other point about this, of course, and I have heard many, many stories over the years about this, is that it's inevitably a gendered game. Um, mm. You know, the women are supposed to go to these cocktail parties and, you know, laugh at all the jokes and look beautiful. And, you know, anything that really, I think, accentuates those kinds of differences amongst people has to be very clearly justified as a job attribute. And I'm not quite sold on the idea mm. that conducting yourself at a cocktail party is that important of a job attribute. But hey, call me a cynic. <laughs> I'm with you there, I think, yeah. And then finally, we wanted to, I think the OCI's process is just one of a number of processes in law school and in, in the legal profession in general that I think lead to a very obvious, and I mean, there have been studies done, and we will link to those, a loss of idealism. And yeah. you kind of see a lot of first years coming in, they're really passionate about the law, they want to do good work, they want to do access to justice, even if they don't, they're, they're enthusiastic, and they're passionate. And then they, we see it, they can, they kind of get it beat out they of them a little jaded. bit, they get jaded yeah. and a little bit cynical. And you know, and that not that that doesn't happen in lots and lots of other professions, of course, it does. But it does seem to be a particular issue in law. Yeah. And I think, you know, we have to recognize there are students who come to law school wanting to work on Bay Street and do corporate practice, which is great. Yeah. I think that the concern is more about presenting that as the sole and exclusive place that you will be seen as being worthy. Um, you know, this is seen as the pinnacle of success for law students to get a, a job through the OCIs and the ones who don't mm. feel like they are unworthy. Feel like and I think that yeah. that is an extremely narrow way to think about legal practice. And as you say, Dana, it, it definitely has an impact on people's sense of, of personal motivation and idealism. And that really is something that, you know, not only myself, but I'm sure other faculty members have seen with students and have tried to, you know, encourage them to hold on to some of that idealism. And we have put a couple of links uh, on the webpage to some studies there. They're from the 1990s, but the data hasn't changed. This stuff has been around for a while. And I think it's a really important question 
that I would love us to come back to perhaps in another podcast in a future season if we get a response to this one. How can we vision a recruitment process that allows everybody in law school to really be able to focus on the kind of work they want to do and mm. to get the support that they want to do that kind of work instead of just sort of tunneling Funneled everybody into, this, into yeah. this sausage factory. Sorry, I have many good friends in Bay Street. I'm not really saying they're <laughs> sausages, but you know what I mean. Not every lawyer needs to be a Bay Street lawyer. So thank you very much for everybody who contributed to this. Yes, and we do welcome your comments. In other news, first up in other news, Malcolm Mercer, the treasurer of the Law Society of Ontario, published a column for Slaw Magazine dealing with sharp practice by lawyers, the interactions between lawyers and SRLs, and general issues of how to manage the legal profession. Malcolm was one of the attendees at the NSRLP's dialogue event in October, where there was significant discussion of exploitative actions that some lawyers take against SRLs. The NSRLP also recently published a case law database report showing the increase in summary judgment applications by represented parties against unrepresented parties and the 98% success rate of these applications as one issue of procedural fairness. We've linked both to our report and Malcolm's column. At its core, Sharp practice speaks to the divide between insiders and outsiders, a divide that seemed to be more and more common in the justice system. This is something we've spoken about on the podcast before, but we're hopeful that having people in positions of authority speak out about these concerns will shed light on ways we can improve access to justice and build a fairer justice system. Our second news story is about a recent article looking at Gladue reports, access to justice, and the ways in which the Canadian justice system isn't doing enough for Indigenous communities. The article also contains quotes from Jonathan Rudin, the Program Director for Aboriginal Legal Services of Ontario, who spoke on last week's podcast episode. In this article, he notes that while ALS gets some federal funding, federal funding is less than 10% of their overall budget, and that while some other programs in Ontario do get some federal support, many don't get any support. He further states that, quote, I don't think it's solely a federal responsibility, but I think the federal government has a role in helping to deal with it." Unquote. The article looks beyond Ontario, though, and examines steps like Nova Scotia recently opening the first Gladue court in the province, and the first Aboriginal wellness court in the country. The article also examines the ways other provinces are lagging behind, and also responds to the claim that Gladue reports are treated as a get-out-of-jail-free card for Indigenous offenders. This article does a good job summarizing some of the complexities of the Canadian legal system in the context of Indigenous communities and what a nation-to-nation -nation relationship should look like. Lastly, Julie was interviewed in another podcast called The Law School Show. The focus of the podcast series is to provide students with access to key career-shaping information, including what it means to practice law in different areas, insights into various recruitment processes, the bar exam, the licensing process, and every other piece of the law school experience. This particular episode involves Julie chatting about her work for NSRLP, her experiences that have led to this point, and sharing some insights on the legal profession. Even if you aren't a law student, it's worthwhile checking out this episode and other episodes of The Law School Show. That's it for this week of jumping off the ivory tower. 
Join us next week where we jump into the exciting world of social justice theater. 